How should you worship God? How and where does God want to be worshipped today? Does he like old buildings or new auditoriums? Does he prefer drums or the organ? Or is he indifferent to it all? Doesn't matter where, doesn't matter how, as long as you are sincere. Or does it? In our passage today, Jesus reveals the nature of true worship to someone who the people of the time would have considered the most unlikely candidate for this kind of theological interaction. Uh, In a moment we'll see why. But before we do that, let me just review briefly where we're up to in John's Gospel. You remember in the first part of chapter 1, we saw the Word, the light, the sun, was God with God. And we saw that he became flesh and tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us. He is God with us. And he's the perfect revelation of God to us. And then in the second half of chapter 1, we saw John the Baptist being sent by God to to prepare the way for his coming. And then in chapter 2, we saw how Jesus turned water into wine when the wine ran out of the wedding. And then we saw him clearing the temple. And the dispute he had with the Jews about that, and you remember what he said? Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. And he was talking about the temple of his body. And so we saw that Jesus claims to be the true temple, the place where we really meet God. And then in chapter 3 we saw his conversation with Nicodemus. We saw that Jesus taught that unless someone is born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. But yet, being born again is not something that we can do. It is something the Holy Spirit does. The Spirit gives us new birth, where He wills. And then finally, last week, we saw a discussion with a Jew, led John the Baptist's disciples to worry about the fact that, that Jesus is becoming more popular than their leader. But John was okay with that. He was sent to prepare the way for him. Jesus must be greater, and John must be less. Well, in our passage today, it opens with news getting back to Jesus that the Jews had realized he was now Mr. Popular in Judea. So what does he do? Chapter 4, verse 1. When Jesus learned the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Now that's an interesting move, isn't it? You're winning... Okay, I'm going. Last week we saw that John was satisfied that Jesus must increase. He must decrease. And now that the Pharisees see that's happening, Jesus decides to withdraw. Now we don't know why he does that. Maybe he's becoming too prominent. And the time for confrontation with the Pharisees has not come yet. Maybe he doesn't want to compete with John. He's got every right to take disciples from John. John knows that. But maybe he's just being gracious and doesn't want to do that at this stage. We we don't know. But whatever the reason, Jesus heads back up north to Galilee. But between Galilee and Judea, there was Samaria. And so verse 4 says he had to pass through Samaria. Now, Samaria was the old northern kingdom. You may remember from doing Bible overview or from 
from your general Bible knowledge or some other teaching, uh, a thousand years before this, Israel had been divided. Northern Kingdom was retained the name Israel. The Southern Kingdom was called Judah. And then, after a while, many people of the north were sent into exile uh, in 722 BC by the Assyrians. And the rest who were left, well, they intermarried with the other people the Assyrians brought in. The capital of the north was called Samaria. And so, eventually, the whole northern area was called Samaria. And the northerners were called Samaritans. The south was called Judah. But after their exile, they called it Judea, and the people who lived there were called Jews. Now, the Jews despised the Samaritans. And you can understand why. They were not purebred children of Israel. They were, they were mixed. They worshipped Yahweh, but they worshipped him wrongly. In fact, one of the very things that caused them to fall into idolatry, and therefore God's judgment, all those years ago, was their refusal to come down to worship him in Jerusalem, where he said he ought to be worshipped. Instead, they built their own shrines at Dan and Bethel, and then ended up worshipping Yahweh through golden calves, which are despicable. And even now, they worshipped at Mount Gerazim, rather than in Jerusalem. They'd even built a temple there 400 years before, uh, but the Jews had destroyed it in 128 BC. So you can see they're not good friends. Furthermore, they only had the law. They only had the first five books of the Old Testament rather than the whole thing. So their, their religion was deficient as well. And the Jews considered them unclean. A good Jew had nothing to do with a Samaritan. And Jesus was now traveling through Samaria. And he came to a town there, verse 5, named Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Now, if you were here with us last year, you may remember uh, that this place where, where Jacob and his family moved, uh, where Jacob's daughter Dinah was raped and his sons went on a massacre and revenge, well, that was the place 2,000 years before this. And now Jesus, greatest descendant of Jacob, the one through whom all the promises to Jacob were going to come to fulfillment, came to this same place. And he came there to, verse 6, a well that Jacob himself had dug. Incidentally, the well is still there. Now, here are some pictures of it uh, coming up on the screen. Um, and you will notice that uh, they've built a church around it, as you do. Right? And so there we've got that, the Jacob's well. Okay, verse 6. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey was sitting beside the well, or you could even literally say sitting on top of the well. It was about the sixth hour, which means 12 noon. So Jesus is sitting there, and he's tired from the journey, and he's, well actually just interesting, isn't it? He's tired from the journey. Now how often John makes a point of reminding us that Jesus is God, he also reminds us that Jesus is man. And there he is, Tired. And so at noon, he's sitting there on the well. But when you look at those pictures, you'll see something in those pictures, if you can see it, you'll see something that wouldn't have been there at the time. Well, there's lots of things that wouldn't have been there. Right? Uh, but the thing I'm thinking about is the pail. Right? Back in those days, people brought their own leather buckets uh, with little cross sticks at the top to keep it open when the, when the bucket is lowered into the water. 
and they would use their own leather buckets to bring the, the water up. And obviously Jesus didn't have one of those, and he, so he's sitting on the well, thirsty. And who should turn up at this well, at this time, but verse 7, as the woman of Samaria. This is 12 noon. In that culture, women always came to the well early in the morning, or in the evening, just before sunset. And they always came as a group. This woman came at the wrong time. And she came alone. The only women that would do that were so-called bad women. Probably an outcast, despised by the other women for some reason. But Jesus speaks to her and says to her in verse 7, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now you can understand why Jesus would want a drink, can't you? Uh, he's tired, he's traveling, he's hot. The disciples have gone to buy food and he's sitting on the well and he's got nothing to draw water with. No SO on the go in those days. You can stop for drinks as you travel or whatever. No. But this woman, she's surprised at his request. Verse 9. How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Well, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, she's surprised for lots of reasons, actually. She's surprised because he's a man and she's a woman, and he speaks to her, breaking a cultural taboo. Uh, in village society, men were not even allowed to make eye contact with the women. It's just not appropriate. It's not, it's not done. It's, it's, it's decent. Immoral, perhaps. It's, it's like Jesus has broken this cultural taboo. This strange man talking to me. And she's surprised because he's a Jew and she's a Samaritan. And yet he asked her for a drink. He's going to drink out of her leather bucket. But he's a Jew. And the Jews think Samaritans are unclean. He'll get defiled if he drinks from her utensil. But Jesus doesn't care. So she's surprised because he's, he's breaking religious and ceremonial taboos. But isn't that typical of Jesus? break taboos in order to reach people. He doesn't care that people will think bad of him talking to this bad Samaritan woman. He needs a drink and he's not too proud or too shy or too culture bound to ask her for help. And she answers him. Now she might have simply fled when this Jewish stranger comes and talks to her. Right, that might well have been the decent thing to do. But she doesn't. She engages with him. Though instead of giving him a drink, he, she asks him, how come, how come he's asking her for one? How is it, she says, verse, um, verse 9, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Something's wrong. What's going on here? What's the hidden agenda here? How can this be? Well, if there is a hidden agenda, Jesus opens it up in verse 10. If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, the gift of God there is probably the Old Testament. If she had known what God had said in the Old Testament about Jesus, then she would have asked him for living water. 
not just him asking her for a glass of water from the well. Now, what is this living water? Living water can mean two things. Right? It can just mean fresh running water. But that's, that's, that's one normal use of it uh, in the scriptures. Fresh running water, they call it living water. As opposed to the stale water that doesn't... But it's also used in the Old Testament metaphorically to mean something else. Uh, come with me to Jeremiah chapter 2. Now keep your finger, actually better still, keep your bookmark, those yellow little bookmarks, in John chapter 4. Come with me to Jeremiah 2. Jeremiah 2, that's on page 760. God is complaining about both Israel and Judah, the northern and southern kingdoms. He's complaining, he says in Jeremiah 2, verse 12 and 13. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, or be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God's people had rejected him and tried to find their own source of living water. Later on in chapter 17, uh, go down to chapter 17, verse 13 of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13. Jeremiah says this. That's page 781. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. And you see, in Jeremiah then, the fountain of living water is God himself, isn't it? He is the one who provides this fresh water to the people. Though we're not quite sure yet what, this metaphor, what the water metaphor is, but we know it comes from God. And if you look at the context of Jeremiah 13, this, this, uh, this living water is, or 17 rather, this, this living water is some kind of spiritual sustenance. It is what God's people need to bear fruit for God. Because if you go back in the chapter, uh, you see from verse 5 onwards that, you know, the cursed is the man who trusts in his strength. He makes his flesh his strength, his heart turns away from God. He's like a shrub in the desert, won't see any good. She will dwell in the parched places of the wilderness and uninhabited salt land. But, but blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He's like a tree planted by water and sends out its roots by its streams. Doesn't fear when heat comes, his leaves remain green. He's not anxious in the year of drought, does not cease to bear fruit. So from Jeremiah, God is the source of, of living water. And those who trust in him are sustained by him. Therefore bear fruit for him. And yet Israel of old and Judah of old, they had, they had rejected him. They tried to find their own source of spiritual nourishment. Which of course came to nothing in the end. Except the judgment of God. And now Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, If you know who I am, you would have asked me for living water. See who Jesus is claiming to be? He is the God of the Old Testament. He's the one who can supply living water, spiritual sustenance to those who trust in Him. 
what the what he asked the woman to do for him he offers to her he wants her to acknowledge that she is thirsty acknowledge that she doesn't have a bucket acknowledge that she needs a drink if you knew the gift of god and who that is saying to you give me a drink you would have asked him and he would have given you living water or oh, jeremiah is not the only prophet who spoke of living water in zechariah chapter 14 verse 8 i'll just read it to you unless you're a very quick bible flipper zechariah saw a vision of the day of the lord it's a, a day of judgment and salvation and in his picture living water would flow from jerusalem both eastward and westward it was a picture it was a reminder of eden a picture of blessing coming from the presence of god in jerusalem and coming to all the earth which is just like the picture of the temple that ezekiel saw in his earlier vision that's the one we read just now doesn't it turn with me to ezekiel 47 ezekiel 47 Ezekiel 47 on page 888 you will remember that. And remember in Ezekiel 47 God gave Ezekiel a vision of the new temple. Uh just before that he talked about that he we got pages and pages and pages about this temple. It wasn't a literal temple. It was a picture of the future using the the categories of the past. And in this picture We've got water trickling out of the temple, out of the center where the presence of God. And then, the further away from the temple it goes, the deeper the water becomes. And the water brings freshness and and trees even to the desert. And that's in verse eight. And wherever the river goes, verse nine, every living creature will swarm. There's many fish, and the water goes there. and the waters of the sea become fresh when the when, when the water hits the sea and so everything lives wherever that river goes and on the banks of the river verse 12 on both sides there grows all kinds of trees for fruit their leaves will not wither nor their fruit fail but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water from for them flows from the sanctuary their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing see the picture that god is painting there living water fresh water coming out from the future temple in Jerusalem from God's presence among his people going out to the world and creating a a new kind of eden and then we remember that Jesus showed us just back in chapter 2 that he is the real temple and now Jesus is offering this woman living water If you knew the gift of God, if you understood the Old Testament, and you knew who was saying to you, "Give me a drink," you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Back to John chapter four, and the woman decides to take Jesus literally because you know living water can mean fresh water, and so she gently mocks him in verse eleven. Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. You don't even have a leather bucket like I have. Where are you going to get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? 
He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Well, actually, ironically, Jesus is greater than Jacob, isn't he? And the water Jesus gives is a lot better than the water you get from the well that Jacob dug. And Jesus says to her, verse 13, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What does this mean? What is this water within you welling up to eternal life? What is that a metaphor for? Well, we're not told here, but thankfully it comes up later in John's Gospel. Jump forward with, with me to chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 37 to 39. It's on page 1077. And on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You see the similarity? The, the, the metaphor continues on here. And now the explanation. Now he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So what does the water stand for? It's the Spirit. Is that consistent with what we saw in the Old Testament earlier? Why, yes, isn't it? God is the one who gives the Spirit. God is the one who is the fountain of living water. And the Spirit is the one who gives life. Who gives new life. Who gives life from above. Who causes people to be born again. And the Spirit is the one who sustains and enables us to bear fruit for God. The Spirit is God Himself. Now, the Spirit was given at Pentecost, and so we have the Spirit now. We are the people now who have received this, this living water. But there's more to come. Later on in the book of Revelation, John is given a vision of a new creation. And there, the imagery from the Old Testament is picked up again. Go to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation 22, right near the back of the Bible. Page, uh, keep, keep your bookmark in, John. Page 1251. Page 1251. Revelation chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. This is, this is a vision that John has of, of the new creation. New Jerusalem, new heaven and new earth. Angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, the middle of the street of the city. And on either, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its food each month, and these the tree were for healing of the nations. Does that sound familiar? From Ezekiel, isn't it? And once again we see the living water. And it is flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. It's coming from God Himself. And you see, on that day, in that new creation, you can see the Spirit of God who proceeds from the Father and the Son, from the throne of God and the Lamb, 
He has come to us now, but on that day His coming will be complete. We will be so caught up in the life and love of the Trinity that we will come to everything that we were made for. Find our ultimate satisfaction in God Himself. And for all eternity, we will never be thirsty again. Because what we were made for is relationship with God. Deep relationship with God. To love Him, to enjoy Him, to know Him and to glorify Him. Friends, people everywhere are thirsty. And we try and fill our thirst with possessions, relationships, career, children, religion. And yet we will ultimately find that the thirst is never satisfied until we find our satisfaction in God himself. And while we know something of that satisfaction now, we know it is not complete until that last day. Let me read to you something that C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, Mere Christianity. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger, well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire, well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy, that does not prove the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. And if that is so, I must take care on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a copy, an echo, or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others do the same. Jesus offered the woman living water that would quench her thirst forever. That satisfaction is from God Himself. The Spirit from the Father and the Son. But look at her response in verse 15. John chapter 4. She says, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Ah, yeah. As she kind of, you know, Jesus is like, whoa, big things up there. She's still talking about going to the well. Well, at least she's interested. And then Jesus appears to change the subject. Though actually he's not changing the subject. He's actually helping her see her thirst, her need for the real water that he offers. And so he says to her in verse 16, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Whoa. 
I like watching 24 or Spooks. Do you ever watch that? Oh, okay. Well, you get the image, and then someone in the come in the control center will go through all the and give you all the information that comes back into the, into the little thing in your ear and tells you all about this person. All right, this is not what's going on here, is it? Right? This woman is surprised. How does he know all this? Yes, she has had five husbands, or actually five men. Could have had five marriages which ended in death or divorce, or could be that she's had five affairs, one after another. In any case, the man that she's with is not her husband either. Just because you live with someone doesn't mean you actually makes you married. And so now we know why she was going to the well by herself at noon. She is known as a sinful woman. She's a woman with a pattern of sexual sin and relationship breakdown. She's unstable. She's cheap. She's shunned by the community. But Jesus loves her. And he offers her, before anyone else in the whole of Samaria, the gift of the Spirit and eternal life. My friends, I do not know what you have done in the past. There may well be people here, and a group this size, there probably are, who have acted as cheaply and sinfully as this Samaritan woman. There may be people here who can't hold a relationship together because you've been so badly injured in the past and you're so sinful in the present. There may well be people here who feel they have to hide what they're doing because if people sitting around you in church find out, you don't think they'll want to know you. But Jesus knows you. He knows you as well as he knew that Samaritan woman. And knowing her background didn't stop him for one moment asking her for a drink. And knowing her background didn't stop him for one moment offering her living water. Jesus loves you. Even if everyone else uses you and discards you, Jesus loves you. And to bring you eternal life, he suffered and died for your sins. Every last one of them. To give you the water of life, he was willing to hang up on a cross and cry, I thirst. Under the dreadful heat of God's judgment. Taking the punishment that you deserve on your behalf. So he can give you eternal life. He says today, ask and I will give you living water. But please, He is the fountain of living water. Don't reject Him and try and find your own systems that won't hold water. Well, the woman is impressed that Jesus knows so much about her. She says to him in verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. He's more than a prophet, but okay, she's making progress, isn't she? She can see he's a prophet. And since he's a prophet, and, and he's in right in front of her, maybe he can clear up this big issue that the Jews and Samaritans have been fighting about for centuries. 
Verse 20, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. When she says this mountain, she's probably pointing to Mount Gerazim because it's actually in the area. You can see it from where the well is. Where? Mount Gerazim? Or Jerusalem? Now actually it's true what she says that Abraham and Jacob both worshipped God in that area. But it's also true that God later commanded his people to worship him in the temple at Jerusalem. So actually the Jews were correct. But soon that debate is going to be superfluous because a new reality is dawning. Verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Now he doesn't say there's no right and wrong to the question. He doesn't say it doesn't matter where you worship. Everybody worship wherever you like or wherever your tradition tells you to do. No, no, no. In fact, he's just about to say that the Samaritans are ignorant. Verse 22, you worship what you don't know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Because the whole Old Testament, not just the first five books, the whole Old Testament, the Davidic kingly line, the temple, all those things were the things that God set up to get things ready for Jesus. Salvation, they were all, they were all Jewish things, not Samaritan. And ultimate salvation was going to arise from that half of the north-south divide. Samaritan worship was false worship. Jewish worship was a shadow of the true things to come, of the good things to come. Samaritan worship was wrong. Jewish worship was going to be outdated anyway. So at one level, we can forget these arguments. Though where God wants... People to meet him is important. But the literal, physical Jerusalem was no longer going to be the place where God wants people to meet him. The temple in Jerusalem was going to no longer be the place where God wanted to be worshipped. And Jesus says in verse 23, The hour is coming, and is here now, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. Now, what does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? Some people think it means worshiping spontaneously instead of liturgically. Some people think it's exercising particular gifts of the spirit. Some people think it's having a slightly altered state of consciousness as you sing, so it's a little bit like you're asleep, but it's not. Some people think it's, I don't know, singing emu songs. Well, somehow I doubt it. None of these things are, are wrong in themselves. Some of them are quite helpful, but it's not what it means to worship in spirit and in truth. We saw back in chapter 3 that is the Spirit who gives us new life. Worship in the Spirit is connected with that. We've just seen the promise of the Spirit to those who ask Jesus. Living water. Worship is connected with that. Spirit and truth. The Spirit is always closely connected with the truth. In fact, later on, Jesus would describe him as the Spirit of truth. Uh, in John 15:26, he says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So the truth that the Spirit of truth bears witness about is, is Jesus. 
And the truth about Jesus is never divorced from the person of Jesus. Uh, Jesus said, I am the truth. And so worship in spirit and truth is worship that is made possible by the Spirit who gives us new life, as we saw in John 3, which is based on Jesus as the truth, the one who reveals the Father and comes to the Father by Him. It's not based on geography, sacred times and sacred spaces. No more sacred spaces, are there? Jerusalem, The Spirit is the water of life. The temple which where, where, where the Spirit comes from to give life to all the earth is, is Jesus Himself. And so worship in spirit and truth is, is worship at the true temple. The Lord Jesus. It's giving your heart and life to God in, in Jesus. And you can only do that when the Spirit gives you a new life. And now is the time now that Jesus has died and risen again and poured out his spirit now is the time to worship the Father in spirit and truth to worship through him and one day in the new creation we will worship perfectly in spirit and truth as we, deep, as we drink deeply and continually from the water of life the spirit and continually to bow down before the Father through the Son, giving Him the glory for who He is and what He has done, and so be caught up in the perfect life and worship of the Trinity. Does it matter where you worship God? Of course it does. God is very particular about how and where you worship Him. You worship Him in spirit and truth worship Him in the one who is the truth. We worship Him in Jesus. And only in Jesus. Do you worship the Father in spirit and truth? Do you submit to the Father through the Son by the Spirit? Do you worship at the true temple, the Lord Jesus? Or do you seek to worship some other way? His worship is something that involves coming to God through Him and submitting all your life to Him. Or is it just a ritual that you go through for a couple of hours on a Sunday in what you think is a special place? Now, all this is a little bit much for a Samaritan woman. It's getting a bit too hard to understand. She's just going to wait for the Messiah to come and then He'll explain it. Verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus says outrightly that he is the Messiah. Something he, not, he doesn't do very often, does he? And he even does this in a way to imply something more, because the words literally translated says, I am the one speaking to you. And you know that I am in the Old Testament is the, is the name for God. And that was agreed on by both Jews and Samaritans. And Jesus deliberately uses God's name, I am, in his self-identity as he reveals himself to this woman. Jesus is a prophet. 
He's the Messiah. He's the temple. He's the fountain of living water. For He is the God of Israel come in the flesh. So how will the woman respond? Will she believe Him? Will she receive the gift of the Spirit? Will she come to the true temple and worship? And what will happen when the disciples get back and discover Jesus talking with a loose Samaritan woman? I'll come back next week. Same time, same pulpit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of the Scriptures. And we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us and you have shown us who your Son is. And so, Father, we come to him for living water. Thank you that in him there is life. Thank you that from him comes your spirit to us and to give us new life and to sustain us that we might bear fruit and walk in your ways. And we thank you that through your Son, by your Spirit, we have relationship with you. That we do know you and love you. And find our satisfaction in you. And we do long for the day when we see you more clearly. When all the sin and the inadequacies of our lives are gone. And we stand with you in the new creation, enjoying that perfect relationship with you by your Spirit through your Son and drinking deeply from the living water that flows from your throat. Father, please keep us looking to you, finding our life and our satisfaction in you now, and looking towards that future. And help us not be distracted by the so many things in this world that will take our eyes off that, and take our eyes off you. We thank you for your love. We thank you that the Lord Jesus loves even sinful people like us. People with pasts. People with shame. People with things that we don't understand. And that you have loved us. We thank you, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that knowing you, knowing your Son as the fountain of living water, as the temple from which the streams flow out, that we will continually come to that temple and that we will continually worship you in him. 
where we will continually live our lives under his lordship and continually bow in awe and worship at the great God who has done this all for us. Help us to keep coming to that temple, to keep drinking of that water, to keep being sustained by you and your spirit. never to try and make our own systems and rejecting you. Pray this Father in Jesus' name. Amen.